This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with Joe Toscano. Joe Toscano is an award-winning designer, a published author, and an international keynote speaker. Joe previously consulted for Google in Mountain View, California, but he left because he believes that the industry misuses data, and he felt that the issues needed to be addressed through innovation rather than strict regulation. Since leaving, Joe has traveled the world speaking to audiences ranging from 10 people at local events to 15,000 people in corporate events. He has written a book called Automating Humanity, and he has started the Better Ethics and Consumer Outcomes Network, or Beacon, all focused on increasing technological literacy, discovering opportunities for intentional and thoughtful innovative practices, and moving communities forward through purpose-driven innovation. Outside of Beacon, Joe also writes for forums. He is a member of the World Economic Forum's Steering Committee for Data Protection, and he is featured in The Social Dilemma. His work is in the process of being translated into law, putting him in the room with legislators across the United States, including the New York State Senate and dozens of attorneys general to whom he submitted evidence in the antitrust case against Google. A quick disclaimer before we start. Joe's ideas are brilliant and as clear as can be, but the recording quality on his audio is not. You'll hear some clicks along the way, but don't let them distract you from the ideas. Trust me, they're worth it. So Joe, you left Google where you had worked as an experienced design consultant in 2017. What was it that led you to decide to leave? Was there a particular moment, an outward change? Or did something change for you inwardly? What was it? I think that it was multiple moments over time. One that I distinctly remember was me trying to push back on some of the user experience testing questions that they were doing and taking it to my boss and saying, hey, we need to talk to them about these because they're very leading questions. This is not appropriate and proper research methodology, And in short, my boss basically said everything, but this is your job. This is our biggest client. Please just don't mess this up. (laughs) So I was like, okay, nobody really wants to make change here. I understand, you know, you're moving billions of dollars. It's not an easy thing to change. It's definitely not a quick thing to change. These issues are going to be persistent for quite some time. But I, I do remember that moment. And that was one of the moments where I said, you know, I just can't. I can't keep doing this. I know this is wrong. I felt personally like the work, not just at Google, but across the industry at large, if it were to be run through a a proper IRB, may not be legal. And so I just decided to leave because I didn't believe in the way things were working. I didn't believe the way that it's impacting society. And I felt that you could make change while still making more money. I don't think making change means you need to make less money. They just are so deeply entrenched in their business models that they have no financial incentive to make change. Life's good. 
I talk to a lot of former tech workers who speak out, and there is a fairly consistent through line in the experience that they encounter of actual real difficulty, especially if they decide to become openly and publicly critical. They oftentimes face backlash or claims that their critiques are not true. Several say that they are unhirable after publicly voicing their concerns about a company. Was that your experience? What, what was your experience? Ooh. Well, I haven't tried to get a job since then. <laughs> I've been doing my own thing. I wrote a book. I've you know, created my own company out of this. So I haven't tried, but it was my early nightmare. Yeah. Like in the beginning stages of this, I was like, I definitely thought I wouldn't be hireable. I do think that that tide has changed now. I do think nowadays people would, would hire me, but you know, the first couple years of this, uh, I mean, to give you some context into this, I, first of all, I've bootstrapped this whole thing. I'm not like a lot of other people who have come out and either gotten, you know, big backers to support them or lawyers or all these things. I did this all grassroots. I left, I broke my lease in San Francisco. I sold pretty much everything I own, pulled all my money out of my own bank account, my own savings, and I took off. I, I lived in a Honda Accord coupe for two and a half months. Speaking anywhere in the US that would have me, I drove to those places. And um, over time, my name just grew. I mean, I, I had a good following on social media, so that helped me get off the ground. But yeah, I mean, it was scary. I was, I was back home at my parents' house at one point writing a book about my experiences that were very contrary to what my employers would want me to say. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm in my childhood bedroom. I went from a six-figure salary, very comfortable job, very promising career. I was you know, 26 years old when I got the gig and I was doing senior level work to now I'm back in my parents' basement. I'm in the bedroom I grew up in. And I don't know if I'll ever get out of here again, at least not in the way I'd like to, right? I might've just shot my career. I, I definitely had a mental breakdown a couple of times about that in the first couple of years. What do you think that you had? What kind of mindset do you think that you possess that allowed you to take this remarkably gutsy move that most tech workers, I think, would not make because of all of the things that you just cited? What kind of ethical code or sense of character do you think you possess? Part of it's my Midwest upbringing. You know, I'm from Nebraska. We are a very pragmatic state. And it's very much like you, you earn what you work for and don't cheat people, don't lie, you know, very honest culture, very, very also connected, like community focused culture, right? It's a place where I'll tell you, like, you know, my experience going from Nebraska, uh, where I grew up, you look people in the eye, you look strangers in the eye, you say hello while you're walking on the sidewalk to then moving to Colorado that started to change a little bit to then going to the valley where everyone's looking at their phone. It's all transactional. You know, I just, I just think for one, I just didn't fit in for two, you know, there's certain things in life. And I don't know if you've maybe felt this with your work or not, but there's certain things in life where you just feel it, that this is like something that needs to happen. And I felt at that time in my life, I was 27 when I left, I was young enough. I was healthy. I still to this day, I don't really have any health issues, but blind to the potential dangers, right. Of like not having health insurance, not having any backup support system, anything, right? Um, just said, you know, I think I can do this. And I think this is the time of my life to try it. I, I also constantly thought about all the people who can't do this, all the people who maybe are inside and want to make change, want to do something like what I'm doing, but they have family they need to pay the bills for. They have kids they need health care for. They have all these other things I didn't have at 27 years old. And it's just like, I just let it go. I just said, let's try it. And uh, I jumped off the cliff and it was, it was terrifying for a while. Still to this day can be very scary. You know, it's 
it's just deeper issues. And now I feel more secure because I think, I think the world's on my side at this point, right? At the, the beginning, I was the crazy guy. Now I think the world is like, well, yeah, this is what needs to happen. So thanks for, for spearheading it. But yeah, I mean, it's entrepreneurism in general is scary. And then to be an entrepreneur who is deciding to push back on some of the biggest, most powerful companies in the history of the world <clears throat> can get very uncomfortable. And when you jumped off the cliff and the own thing that you say that you started is called Beacon, what led you to start Beacon specifically? Yeah. So originally it was actually called Design Good, designgood.tech. And we changed the name to Beacon because what we really wanted to do, we, we foresaw this future where there's going to be more regulation. The government in general didn't understand what they're looking at and needs help. And also as consultants, we always felt like there had to be some way to drive better business, right? We always, that's what we do as consultants. So we came to Beacon, stands for the Better Ethics and Consumer Outcomes Network, because we believe you could take these ethical issues, translate them into consumer outcomes, and ultimately make a better business model where you're doing better business and making more money. And so that's always been our goal. We, we would love to make bigger impact all the time. Obviously, that's what we're working on. We would love to at some point, you know, our goal was always like, let's turn this into almost like a holding company where we stand up software products. Because nowadays, it's pretty easy to stand up a software solution, and get it going. It's still, it's a lot of work and wrong. But yeah, Beacon was us saying, let's let's change this and let's do it on business terms. We want to help regulators where we can. We want to help shape law, uh, but we don't want to strangle the industry through regulation. So part of it is that too, right? Helping businesses move forward so they don't get overregulated because we're headed that way. You know, right many now. people look at that 2017 moment that you saw as kind of a breaking point. Many people saw that as the beginning of what has been called a tech lash or a backlash against tech. I remember in the wake of the 2016 election in particular, with information about Cambridge Analytica's exploitation of Facebook data, uh, the proliferation of false information online, and the rise of deep fakes. This one I remember in particular. I specifically remember being especially alarmed by seeing Jordan Peele's voice, a dead-on impression of the then President Barack Obama, projected flawlessly onto a video of Obama whose facial expressions had been modified by AI to make it appear as though he were voicing um, Peel's words. You mentioned that this is kind of a, a watershed moment for you. Have public attitudes about tech changed since 2017? You say that you know a lot of people are on your side, but what has changed in that public attitude? That's a good question. And to explain it is not the most simple thing. But I guess if I had to try to put it in like one sentence, I think it's empirical val empirical validation over time. We have now at this point, you know, you had Edward Snowden come out. Really, that was like maybe you could consider the the bubble bursting. Okay, this is a this is a moment in history that we'll all remember. That now we know it's there. Is it real or not? Maybe not everyone's confident of that, but we know it's there. And then you had like Cambridge Analytica was a big one. That was an eye opener. The Great Hack. You know, the movie that came out about Cambridge Analytica. You had all these steps along the way. The social dilemma, right? And it's in the social dilemma. And like that, that's also another one where the realities of it is kind of like good marketing. The public has been getting hit over the head over and over again with the same message. That's the thing. It's not like these are all random, different ways of looking at one issue. They're very similar. If you actually look at the plot lines of these movies or these events, things like that, it's all basically like an individual or a group of individuals coming out and saying, hey, 
you probably don't realize this is going on, but look at what's going on. And right, everyone asked me last week and a half ago when Francis Hagen released all the documents about Facebook, well, does this change anything? Is it any different than what's been said? And, and the reality is the root of it is it's not really that different. What it is, is it's more. It's calcifying the truth, right? And so that's what I would say is we have empirical evidence over time. The public is now more aware because they've heard about this now multiple times from multiple sources, and they're all saying the same thing, at which point you start to triangulate and say, well, this must be true. And if you look at the structure of that plot, I'm a narrative scholar, mm-hmm. so I like to think about terms, you know, of plots and the kind of general structures that plots follow. What's the general plot? What's the same story that happens over and over and over again that's now calcifying into a kind of single aggregate, ossified story that people are starting to take more seriously? I believe that that narrative really is that you're getting taken advantage of and you didn't realize it and it's time to protect yourself. I think that that's the root of it. There's a bunch of different stems off there, right? Like coded bias, uh, algorithm bias and different things that focused a little bit more that direction. Then you have like the social dilemma was much more on like addiction within the great hack was the abuse of data, the target ad. There's this thing happening in your life. It's playing an invisible godlike role and you didn't realize it. And oh, by the way, it's been happening for a decade. And these companies that they're worth like a trillion dollars now, it's because they extracted it all from you and you didn't get a penny out of it. Is there one particular feature of that kind of extrapolative tech culture or tech products that do this that keeps you up at night in particular? I don't know that it keeps me up at night anymore. I've settled into the discomfort, but... I would say, you know, the thing that I focus on the most is data protection, data privacy, data rights, things like that, human-centered. I love hearing about the other issues and hearing how people are approaching them. Um, But I just feel that data protection, data asset management, data rights is, is more my wheelhouse. I've worked across data science, engineering, and now design. And, and I've always been able to transit between them all. So where I sit now with my work is an additional layer of like, now I keep up with lawyers. I've read a lot of law over the last few years, but I just figured, you know, I'm already doing it. and um, I can hire lawyers to help me out where I need it. So yeah, my, the one issue I really focus in on, like I said, is privacy, data protection, data rights, data asset management, stuff like that. Because I, I believe that's the root core of all of this. Why do you believe that this is the root core? What is it about data privacy in the tech industry and tech products in particular that makes this a particularly important issue of concern? Great question. So from my perspective, the incentive structure of the internet is broken because there is no recognized value to data at this point in history. It is effectively like a slush fund. Well, here, here's the thing. If you think about the business model of the internet, it is to get more attention right clicks engagements comments likes whatever shares which then turns into data that can be used for product creation that can be used to train ai systems that can be used to be sold data brokers you know things like that and then it turns into cash so at a meta level you have this illegitimate asset of attention which is then getting translated into an in, another currently illegitimate asset in data i believe can be legitimized but it's currently illegitimate and then taken into a legitimate asset in cash. If you think about how that works, it's a lot like a money laundering system. You've effectively taken this invisible, intangible, like air-like thing, attention, and turned it into money, right? What's happened, it's kind of like the gold rush. They've been extracting all this attention out of us. No one's realized that they're taking this and turning it into money. 
that's the real big thing. And they and the reality of it is they have created basically the perfect business model. It's almost the most like it's one of the most efficient business models we've ever seen in the history of the world. It, you can almost turn a dial and set it and it's just structured so it's going to continue to grow. And where I see the problems here, right, is that data is that asset they're trying to get from us. When we pay attention to the screen, think about the words you're saying, literally the words coming out of your mouth. You're saying that you're paying attention to the screen. They make more money, right? And so what we're doing when we are paying them attention, creating data, et cetera, it's almost like we are the coal miners back in the day. But instead of physically going out there with an axe and chopping away at this all the time, we're just pressing buttons. It's micro-fractional events that are compounding over time, over the course of billions of people and creating trillion dollar companies, right? And so I believe that's where, that's why I started here is the spigot to that is when we give consent. And if people don't understand what they're giving consent for, or the, the value exchange that's happening, then they don't even, we haven't even started even close to an even playing field. And that's step one, right? So that's where we work. I also have worked with uh, the antitrust teams. I've created a theory in my book on antitrust in the attention economy. And if you think about it from an antitrust perspective, data is also that root cause problem. Because why? The, they can very clearly see the destruction of competition at this point in history. They can pretty clearly see the elimination of free trade of goods data. So you have this exchange that's happening here and they can see the elimination of competition, elimination of goods. But what they can't quite put their heads around is the monetary, the fiscal part of this. Because in recent antitrust law, it's been assumed that if the company is lowering the price, they'll typically just let them go, right? In the beginning of antitrust law, it was really about consumer protection. Now, since you know the past you know, 1950s, 60s area that had the theory on how really we need to focus more on the capital side of things, we've now created the law more around that. The problem there is that, like I said earlier, they've removed themselves. These companies don't really operate in the fiscal market the same way. We don't pay them for anything in the financial terms. We pay them in attention. And that's why we have this new attention economy. So what's happened here is we're now in a different playing field, but it's the same operations. And when they make us pay more attention, when they create an addictive system, an addiction is meant to what? An addiction is meant to pay more attention over time, keep us glued. So an addiction is actively and intentionally trying to get you to pay as much attention as possible. They are, in a sense, price gouging in the attention marketplace. And by raising that attentional cost as high as possible, they're flipping the model. But the regulators can't see that because all they're looking at is money's at zero. Everything's free, so it should be what's best, right? So we're trying to we're trying to bridge how do we take this attentional market and translate the psychological value into harms and into financial value here. And it's very hard. It's not like an easy thing to map together. It's very fractional and downstream. I mean, I think about this a lot. There's a wonderful book by the academic Tim Wu over at Columbia called The Attention Merchants, which takes this exact position. And I think quite frequently about the quote attributed to William James, the famous psychologist that says, our lives will amount to what we have paid attention to. And I connect that with something that you say, which is that actually we should own our own data. We are, in a sense, working for free for the tech companies who use our data to create their products. 
we should get paid for that. And I think about, on the one hand, William James's comment and Tim Wu's larger book, which is kind of looking at the ethical, political, and social dimension of the attention economy. And of course, I look at your addition to that, which is looking at the economics of the attention economy. Is there a connection for you between the economics of the attention economy and the ethics of the attention economy? Yeah, 100%. That's, and again, that's why I'm focusing on data and privacy, because I believe it is the, the nearest parallel we have to a tangible market that our regulators understand, right? It, data asset value is very similar to the way that we've operated in the financial market. It's not viewed that way yet, but you can see the parallels. Um, and so that's why I focus so much on that. And I actually prefer more of the conversation around economic sides of it uh, than ethics, not because I don't believe in the ethics, but because I feel like we're actually getting somewhere because in the United States, that's just how we work. If we can, if we can make an economic explanation around it, then regulators take it more serious, business people that take it more serious, and we are a capitalist nation. That's how we make change. Unfortunately, that's how it works. We're not Europe. We don't do human rights, at least not very well. And I do, I also agree. I think we're, we should get paid for our data. Now, how we do that is a whole separate conversation. But yeah, the way it's working now, it's like we're building the systems for them. We're, we're creating the fuel, the training data really is the word. We're creating the training data for these AI systems. And we don't get paid a dime. But think about Google Maps. Google Maps was created by the people. We filled in reviews. We took pictures of all the restaurants. We we did all the things. And then Google gets to make money off of these systems, right? Why are we not getting paid for that? You know, if, if Google as a company had to pay people to go out and build maps the way it is, Google Maps wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be able to afford that, right? And, and now what's happening is we're extracting all that wealth out of the individuals. And that's why we have trillion dollar companies. I wanted to bring you back to ethics because despite the fact that you, you say you prefer the economic side of things, I think that Beacon's own website and platform belies an interest in ethics that I wanted to, to question you about. One of the things I especially appreciate about your work is that in everything that you say from your book to the way that you speak to the overt signage on Beacon's website, you have this focus on accessibility, non-technical language, and speaking to a broad public. To me, this seems like an ethic, and it's embedded in everything that I see you doing from the language to the design. Does it feel that way for you? If so, what is the drive behind that? Oh, of course it is. It's a big part of our work, of course. Like I said, we try to make an economic argument about it. Because, you know, I started off the first year or two of this very much focused on the ethics. And as much as that made me happy, it made almost no progress. I hate to say it, but that was the case, you know. It was like, I think there's so much work being done right now that is great work, right? Very thoughtful, very considerate. But very much like this should happen because of human rights. And like I just said, like the United States, unfortunately, doesn't operate like that. So it's nothing against making it a human rights issue because it is. I fundamentally believe these issues, many of them are human rights issues. But the reality of our world is if you want to make change and you want to make change in your lifetime, at least in the United States, you need to figure out how to make a business. You need to figure out how to make money off of it uh, because then you can make change faster. Human rights, think about some of the movements we've seen, right? Civil rights, women's rights, some of these decades, decades, right? Worth of work versus Google, Facebook stood up, changed the world in 15 years, right? 
So, you know, obviously they didn't change it in the direction we were necessarily hoping for, maybe. But also they have created a ton of benefits for the world. We have to respect that as well. The problem is there's just small fundamental issues that are now causing cascading large-scale issues across the world. And those are what need to be fixed. So, you know, how do we take the good with the bad? And and I, like I said, and I've been saying is, I believe there are better business ways of doing this. It doesn't have to be just like hoorah for humanity. It can be both. Let's talk about that both. In a previous episode of the show, one of the guests memorably remarked to me that you can do good and do well. And what he means by that, or what I took him to mean by that, is that you can create profit and you can create products that serve human values. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you do that. Sure. I can tell you our work and how we hope to see it, because right now, obviously, we're just getting the company off the ground. So not a strong proof of concept at this point, just a small one. But the the research behind a lot of our, our work right now, you can find decades of research showing that if people trust you more, if you're more transparent, if you give them more control, etc., they will give you actually more, better, and deeper access to data. So from a company perspective, the data you're going to be getting is much more valuable. It also should be much more organized and accurate. What that means is that you as a company, you're going to spend a lot less time doing data hygiene. You're going to spend a lot less time matching and getting out fraudulent information or eliminating duplicates, things like that, right? Also, there's research stating that if companies give control, that they lose upwards of sometimes you know, 10 to 30% of the data that they normally get, people will revoke access. But the thing is, probably those people weren't giving you the most accurate information anyway, right? Those are probably the people who, like myself, will give you a fake email address, will give you a fake birthday, all that because we know how it works and we don't want you tracking, right? So in one sense, yes, you're losing data. But from a infrastructure and a business cost perspective, you're also lowering the infrastructural cost of managing all that data. If you have 30% less data, you should have 30% less space you need to hold data on a server. That is a financial infrastructure cost to a business. So imagine that if you create this model where people trust you more, they give you more accurate data, you can use it better because it is more accurate and organized, then you're saving, in some cases, some of these big companies, you're probably talking about millions of dollars a year in time and money to production and scale. And so we fundamentally believe in that. And that's why our system helps companies figure out how to do data protection better. Because like I said in the beginning of our talk, we believe that is the root core, it is the spigot, the turnkey at which you know, the data comes in and you as a business do better because of that. I know you're a little bit down on uh, human rights or <laughs> ethical culture, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. How do you think a company, and presumably you're doing this on some level at your company, can build human-centered culture and production into their company? What needs to happen or be in place in order for a company to be and stay ethical? That's a great question. And I'm going to give a really ephemeral answer, which is that it's going to change for every company. I think a good root of it, though, is that you have principles and not just marketing principles, but business principles. I'll give you a more tangible example. Something we're working on and working with businesses to start to wrap their minds around is what we're calling data promises, right? We believe there has to be some point. Right now, there's no legal floor to what's possible with our data. 
right? When we sign a terms and conditions agreement, and oftentimes those notices will tell you that this can be updated at any moment without needing extra consent, maybe without even telling you about it. They will tell you what they're currently doing with your data, but it doesn't really limit any future opportunities. It also doesn't tell you what they won't do with the data. So uh, maybe a simple tangible example is what we're working on, which we call data promises, where a company sets out and promises, we will not do X, Y, or Z. And if we do, you can come after us because that then sets a legal floor. So like 23andMe, for example, in their notice mentions they won't sell your data to third parties. That doesn't mean they won't give access or make partnerships and things like that, but they won't externally sell it. It's very hard though, right? Like ethics is an intangible thing and it changes over time. It changes over culture. It changes over so many issues. And that's why we on our site, you can go look and see our guiding principles. Those are the things that guide us. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect all the time. It doesn't mean that we're going to score 100% on all those measures. It means that's what we're striving for. And you can look at our principles to validate how we came to the conclusion we did in our work, right? That's the end goal there. And I think the problem that we're seeing right now is so many companies are getting on this ethics train and all they're doing is putting a marketing site up and they're not really following through, right? Um, so ethics, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, my belief is that it stands on principles. That's the most tangible expression of it. But it's even principles are not really ethics, right? It's more like the most descriptive thing you can get close to the ethics with. Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying. Sometimes when I teach my ethical technology class, I show my students season six of Silicon Valley, where the villain of that show, Gavin Bilson, who has been abusing some of the technological products he has been creating, and certainly an abuser in tech culture, has decided in order to gain political and social capital to develop a technical uh, movement and a technical manifesto. And the kind of key touchstone moment is his development of a technical manifesto that we discover uh, has pulled all of its principles from Arby's menus or uh, the AARP and Starbucks. And I always like to tell my students, language matters. And if the principles you articulate are so broad that they can either belong in a technical manifesto or on an Arby's menu, then it's probably too broad. And one of the kind of strategies behind that broadness or that cliche blank statement is the ability to not actually have to stand behind it in any serious meaningful specific policy based way and and you know i think about that quite a bit because it is tied to kind of language but it, i think that the other thing that it makes me think about is that you know uh, gavin bilson creates this technical movement after creating this deeply unethical company and my conversations with tech critics have led me to think that you cannot create ethical culture as like a prosthetic that you glue on to your company afterward. It has to really be at the foundations. And, and that's one of the reasons that I really appreciate that on Beacon's website, you, you list those basic principles from the get-go. It's one of the first things that anybody encounters when they visit your website. And those principles that animate Beacon's uh, business practices include, and I'll just read them out, accessibility, human-centered design, transparency, that your product is representative and equitable and trustworthy. Can you talk a little bit about how you came up with those six principles? 
Yeah, it was very democratic. I didn't come up with those. I, I, I helped refine them. Uh, I would say the majority of my work in this activist role as CEO, I spend more of my time listening and integrating than I do dictating and defining. Uh, and, and, and I guess that's also kind of why I struggle with the principles as ethics, because like I, like I said, it's, it's really, that's our principles at this point in history. But in 10 years, things may change. The world changes. You have to adapt. You have to update things to make sure that those principles are in line with the current realities of the world, right? And so I think there's a few things that people need to really consider here with ethics. And one, which is they, they are not static. They never will be. You need to constantly be looking at them, reviewing them, checking for authenticity, et cetera. Two, I would highly suggest creating an external board. Currently, we're in the process of creating this, but I've also worked internally to build a democratic system within my company. You know, I split a 50-50 with my partner. I've built out different parts of equity to where I have checks and balances. Unlike like Zuckerberg, right? Zuckerberg, who basically what he wants with Facebook. I set out intentionally to make it hard for me as CEO to make absolute decisions. I think those are things to look at. You know, if your students are thinking about this, if other people listening are thinking about this, you can check to see if a company really cares to see how they are legally set up. Because a lot of companies that don't have these ethics or or, or just want to use them as a superficial measure, yeah, they're, they're just structured like a traditional company with a set leader, majority holders are financial, they they follow the, the needs of the financial stakeholders. You know, I think you need to really look into how is this company set up? Do they actually run a democratic process within their own company? Do they have any kind of external board that allows, like, for lack of better words, allows the company to be put on blast if they don't do something right? What is their reporting like? How do they keep themselves in check? Do they do annual reporting? Do they disclose different things about the company that allow the public to truly look into the issues themselves if they want to. So there's not like an absolute answer as to what's ethical, what's not, how to tell if the company's good or not. But those are some things I would consider, right? And that's where I've worked really hard. I guess we, we spoke before I got on this official recording and told you, you know, I'm setting up all this admin stuff. I'm doing all the, the legal and the super boring. That's what's going to lead the company. That's what's going to shape the company is those root fundamental legal, financial, all the systems you set up from a administrative perspective to then grow a company outward from that root core. I have another question in a different dimension of the relationship between ethics and, and laws, because of course, ethics are questions about what ought we to do or what should we do in the absence of a rule or a law. That's the basic kind of definition of ethics. Where there is a rule or a law, there's no there's no ethics. It's just following the rule. But ethics crops up in the space where there is not a rule. And one thing that frequently comes up in conversation with tech critics when we talk about the ethical is that while there's a big part of me that still really believes in the importance of talking about ethics in technology in teaching the next generation of technologists, the future of the workforce, to think in ethical and humanistic ways and to push for practical and idealistic ways to transform the way that the industry thinks. There's another voice in me that is a little bit more cynical, probably more in alignment with yours, not to call you cynical, but just to say that there's a, a, an alignment there, or perhaps a more honest voice, if I'm being frank. And that voice sometimes pipes up to wonder whether the ethics talk is really a cipher because one might actually be working in tech somewhat relieved for tech companies to just have to abide by a kind of ethical conduct. Because if we're talking about the ethical, we are talking about what we should do and not what you have to do to follow the law. 
So when we're talking about ethics, we're not talking about public policy. We're not talking about laws. We're not talking about regulation. How do you view that balance between pushing for ethics on the one hand and agitating for laws on the other? So yeah, at the root core, I think laws are created when an individual or group of individuals have become so callous to their moral and ethical responsibilities that we have no choice but to create a solidified law to protect the public from them. Uh, and that's where we're headed. That's unfortunately where we're headed. So I do believe in ethics. I want to believe in ethics. I come from, like I said, a state where it's very warm-hearted people who are very honest, look each other in the eyes, say hello, care about the community. Laws are created for those who abuse the trust, abuse the ethical system in favor of their financial gain or other gains, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think right now we're in a space where we have to talk about it as ethics. And then those ethics, that conversation around it is also helping shape the laws that are then being generated. I personally believe we need some laws to help protect, but I also don't want to see so much regulation put in place that we halt or damage our potential for innovation. And that's where I think we have to find the balance between law and ethics. There has to be some that is just left to faith in humanity. Um, but that's also, that's the game stopper, right? Where do we, where do we draw the line? Where do we leave it to ethics? Where do we need laws and why? Uh, these are existential questions. They are never going to be answered in absolute, and nor should they. These are issues that should, I think, human rights in general should not be codified into law, personally. There are parts of it that might, parts of it that might not, but I think mostly it should not. I think it should always be a cultural debate, and here's why. Because I don't care what side of the political world you're on, but I know there are people listening who, for the last four years, you know, thought Donald Trump was the worst thing in the world. And I know there are now probably also people listening who think Biden's the worst thing in the world. I, I don't know your audience, but I have to assume it goes both ways. Now, the thing is, if your ethics are codified into law, then what happens is whoever is in power has the levers to change those systems. If you right now feel happy because Biden is in office and you believe X, Y, and Z topics should be censored, and so we create laws around that language to censor the language and the arguments around it, as soon as that dial flips and someone else, a different administration is in office that you're not in favor of, they now have the legal levers to go and flip that as well, right? Like we saw with Roe versus Wade. That, this is a big issue, right, that we're now seeing potentially overturned. It may or may not, but we're seeing the agitation around it. And that's because at one point we codified certain things into law. Now, did it benefit us? Yeah, we moved forward a lot because it was put into law. There are issues that need laws around them, but also everyone needs to be aware that as soon as it's put into law, that creates levers for politicians, that creates levers for government. And like, I think the root core problem here is that we as a society have lost morality and ethics in favor of capitalism. That's not an easy argument to settle. <laughs> that's a, that's an even bigger one that we need to talk about, but. The realities of it, I think, is is we've lost that. I just think we as a society have become detached from that morality, detached from our humanity and, and our souls. And we're really economic beings at this point, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I won't dispute the last part of what you said, but, you know, <laughs> my doctoral research was on human rights and the human rights is codified in 1945 and put into international law, one of the most substantial movements in international law after one of the worst uh, atrocities of certainly the 20th century, some argue in human history, was perpetrated by an evil dictator and uh, was allowed to run rampant across international lines. And some scholars have argued that it is not that human rights abuses have ceased to happen post-1945, 
but that the codification of human rights law in 1945 has prevented excess of human rights abuses that in our increasingly, as you put it, um, economically, capitalistically driven society would have proliferated tremendously. So that this law, which is again codified and still we see human rights abuses, has perhaps been critical in stopping the proliferation of even larger human rights abuses. So I do think that like human rights, there, it is quite possible to put international standards in place that are independent of any singular government body. That is, of course, what the United Nations did. It said, we're not going to trust one person with the lever here. We're going to form a coalition of people uh, across national lines and with a number of different levers to create this codification. And I see similar movements in our context of uh, the contemporary moment in tech. For example, there has been a proposed digital bill of rights. That to me seems like a substantive ethical, quasi-ethical, quasi-legal movement along the lines of a 1945 Bill of Rights that actually doesn't make it so that one particular person or lever has entire jurisdiction over the development of something, but rather a kind of broader coalition that might put something much more substantial and enduring in place. Yeah, yeah, and and like I said, don't get me wrong. I I do believe there are points that need to be put into law. I just I think right now we're in a moment where everyone the the response, especially I know a lot of activists. It, often the response when we get asked what can we do is that we need more regulation and i agree in some sense i just think we need to be careful as to what gets put into law and what doesn't we need to be mindful of like that there is certain things that maybe shouldn't be and, and definitely there are things that are and, and where do we draw the lines is the important question so what you're proposing what you're talking about the, the digital bill of rights I don't know that exact draft, that document you're talking about, but you know, I'm, I'm confident there will be more of that. I'm confident at some point in the U.S. we'll have, for example, like a federal privacy bill that will pass and we'll get there. I don't know if we'll get there in this administration because there's so much else going on right now, but we'll get there. It's, it's, a, it's a necessity. It's- are there laws or policies that you think are critical to get into place in this particular moment? At this moment, I think we need to focus on very fundamental things because while it feels that this industry is so developed and uh, large scale and damaging. So there's going to be a lot of things that change and we don't want to stifle the opportunity there because we also as a nation need to, to stay ahead of other nations economically. But some things I've, I've talked about that I think are important. One, I think personally, I think we need some kind of regulation protecting children and not just like COPA laws, but like Actually, kids can't have smartphones until a certain age. I do believe that would make a difference. And, and here's why. I talked to dozens of parents across the nation who they all say they want to have more time with their kids. They want to get the kids away from the phone. They want to do X, Y, and Z, but they can't get their kids away because the parent next door won't do anything or the other parents at school won't do anything. So they're the one parent in a large group who can't do anything because of all the others. And this is, this is a common thing in psychology. It's just group thinking that. I think if there was a law, then what happens is that displaces the blame from the parent, right? Because then the kid gets pissed at the parent if the parent tries to pull their device away. But if there's a law, then the kids have to get mad at the government. They can't get mad at the parent as much for saying you can't have that because the parent actually could get in trouble for this. Just like cigarettes, kids can't have cigarettes, kids can't go gamble. Why do they have a slot machine in their pocket? You know, things like that, I think, could dramatically change things and make it so the kids are protected until they're more developed. I do think there are, you know, we need basic data rights. 
And from a privacy perspective, we need the right to access our data. We need the right to rectify things. Uh, we need the right to move from one platform to the other. We don't have those in the United States. Maybe California has it, right? Um, a couple other states have developed laws around it, but it's not a national thing. Uh, and we do need those. I would love to see some kind of law put into place stipulating a payment structure for for the assets that we are creating for these companies. Now, I've helped draft a data tax proposal in New York State, which has gotten a lot of conversation around it. And there is a lot of support in New York State for a data tax. But will that you know, get put into law? We don't know yet. It's very early. You know, things like that that I think can can create systems that then generate a larger conversation around that asset value. Because the data tax is not the perfect solution, but at least it forces us to have the conversation about what is it actually worth and what do people deserve. So, yeah, I mean, there's probably plenty we could talk about, but those are a few fundamental ones. I think the, the biggest, most immediate thing, we need to protect our children. And then beyond that, because I think protecting children is actually not as hard as it's laid out to be. There are some blunt force things we can do. The, then we have to figure out how we solve miscommunication or misinformation, disinformation, because right now we can't even communicate with society. Let's be honest. The, the polarity that we're seeing is simply because there are two or multiple realities and we don't have a United, a United States right now. We don't have a unified country. And I believe a lot of that has to do with information distribution. So we need to figure out that. And then there's also privacy issues, equity inclusion issues, all these other things. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I am just focused on privacy, but there, each of these issues is going to become its own industry over time. We're out of time, and I wanted to ask you one more question before I let you go. A lot of those future tech workers that I mentioned earlier, that next generation of technologists listen to this podcast, what advice might you give them as they go into their careers? What do you want them to know or understand? What would you have wanted someone to tell you when you were starting off in your career? Two big things. One, whether you're a designer, you're an engineer, whatever it is, learn business. Because like I've said, this whole conversation in the United States, as much as we maybe don't want to think about it this way, you need to know business if you want to make change. It's the fastest way to make change in the United States. And two, consider your impact. If you feel that you're doing something that you don't feel comfortable with, talk to other people about it. You don't necessarily have to go to the newspaper. You don't have to go to the the local news station, but at least talk to other people about it if you're uncomfortable, you know. Um, other people may be going through the same issue, but they may also be afraid to talk about it. Some of these things, you know, it's not comfortable for anybody, and so they everybody holds it in. I think that's what we're seeing right now is actually a lot of people opening up because of a set handful of people that over the last half decade, I, I would say also including myself, have stepped out to, to be a face for this, to give access to people to say it's okay to talk about these issues. And sometimes that's just what it takes is someone to step out and say, this is wrong, to start that conversation. So, you know, learn business. Don't be afraid to start the conversation. And ultimately, you know, just do your best to be educated on the issues and know that it's going to take time. Have patience. Because I know I didn't when I was younger. That's part of why I left, because I felt I needed to make change faster. But um, if you, if you want to stick with it and make change in a big company, it's going to take a lot of time. So, very patience as well. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me.